Welcome to Coffee Up by Market Lane Coffee, a podcast for our growing community of like-minded businesses who want to serve delicious, sustainable, and ethically sourced coffees. My name's Christian. Today we begin what will be a three-part series titled Origin, Variety, and Process. Throughout this series, Tyson and I will catch up with Jason, Market Lane's co-founder, to discuss how a coffee's origin, its variety, and the way that its process can differ greatly from region to region. We'll talk about how these differences will impact not only the flavor profile in your cup, but the factors which influence why a coffee producer may choose to grow a particular variety of coffee or produce it in a certain way, and even how these factors affect how much a coffee will cost. In this episode, Tyson and Jason will discuss the role that origin plays in coffee. Now you may have heard the term terroir before. Translated from the French word for land, it's a term widely synonymous with the wine industry which denotes the character or taste of a region. What contributes to an origin's character may include factors like its unique climate, farm elevation, and cultural agronomy. But to hear these in greater detail, as well as how factors like climate change are affecting different origins, let's hear it from Tyson and Jason. So Jason, why is it important to talk about where a coffee comes from? Well, I think initially we started talking about it because there are different taste profiles from different coffees. So we'd like coffees from Brazil because they'd have a particular character that might suit espresso. Um, But it sort of developed and changed quite a lot. And more recently, we, we buy from different places and we look to get coffees from different origins for the people as well. So the sort of the cultural um, background as well and the cultural importance of the coffees. So yeah, now for us, it's important to, you know, uh, purchase from places like Ethiopia or Bolivia, not only because of the difference in the taste profile, but also because of the cultural connections we have um, to them. So... And with regards to origin, I guess, what are some of the different ways or the different elements that might impact how a coffee tastes from one region to another? Well, I think the cultural differences play a large part in how the coffee's um, planted, how it's prepared, how it's processed, um, and how it's handled. So, for instance, um, coffees from Indonesia are handled in a particular way that gives them, you know, a lot of body and a lot of a particular character. Um, similarly, coffees from Ethiopia um, and Rwanda have, you know, typically very clean profiles, um, and it's because of the way the coffee is processed and because of the way they're handled. We often see uh, listed on coffee bags, or in our case, on the postcards that we have, uh, we might list a coffee's elevation. What kind of a role does elevation play in what makes a coffee special? Elevation is really important in terms of developing quality coffee. So elevation. Uh, traditionally, we've we've always associated elevation elevation with density levels in the in the coffee, and we've said that coffees grown at a high elevation have a you know a much um, more balanced acidity, um, more sweetness as well, more development in the sweetness um, as the fruit ripens, and we've we've always associated that with density. But I think more more than that, it's about the climate. Um, at those elevations that you don't find at lower elevations. So at higher elevations in tropical areas, you have almost the, well, you have the ideal growing conditions for the coffee plant itself. So the coffee might be maturing slowly, but it's more that the plant is in pretty much its ideal condition. So getting to the right high temperatures at the daytime and the right low temperatures at nighttime, the right humidity levels, um, a lack of you know wind or a lack of um, harsh conditions, and obviously the absence of, you know, pests and 
um, disease and things like that. Are there any two uh, regions that might come to mind where you might uh, think they really differentiate one from the other, so where two different regions might stand out? Yeah, I think Bolivia and Brazil are two um, sort of polar polar ends of the spectrum. They're very close geographically. Brazil and Bolivia share a border. Um, they both share um, access to the Amazon, so they're both influenced heavily by the Amazon basin. But they're very different. You know, Bolivia has a, a huge range of um, elevations, a, a huge range of um, growing areas as well, um, salt flats, has a lot of mining, and parts of it are really heavily dominated by, by the Amazon. Um, and Brazil, on the other hand, I mean, while it also has a great range of um, climates and um, a slight range of elevation, it's not to the same extreme almost at all. So the highest parts in Brazil are probably 1,400 metres above sea level, and that's the absolute highest part. And the high coffee grown in Brazil is usually just done above 1,000 metres, so 1,000 to 1,200 metres above sea level. Um, Bolivia, on the other hand, it, it can have elevations up to five, 6,000 metres above sea level. And coffee, they, there is coffee planted at you know, 2,500 metres above sea level, so extremely, extremely high elevations. Another word that we often hear when we're talking about a coffee-growing region is biodiversity. Uh, why is biodiversity so important for coffee? It is really important for coffee. It's important for um, the whole ecology of a coffee-growing region as well. So uh, a good amount of biodiversity will protect the waterways. It will do things like filter, uh, filter runoff that goes into waterways. It will protect um, water sources for you know villages downstream. So there's a whole range of reasons why biodiversity is important. Uh, for coffee production itself, I think on a, on a very basic level, biodiversity means that you sort of mitigate risk by having a lot of different plants available for, you know, for bugs or fungus, for example. So when there's a monoculture and there's a fungus that comes in, the only thing the fungus can attack is the coffee itself. But when there's a whole range of different types of plants, uh, you know, a very lush undergrowth with, you know, not necessarily weeds, but like other, other small plants that aren't producing coffee, um, the fungus or the pests could attack that instead, you know, so they, I think there's not a lot known about um, soil health in terms of, you know, what co-planting does. Um, I don't know how um, much scientific research there's been into specific co-planting, but I think what people do know is that if they do plant a range of different things, um, each plant will sort of uh, create a sort of a symbiotic relationship with the other plant. So, um, you know, funguses and stuff like that in the soil, um, they will feed, one, one fungus can feed nutrients from one tree to a different tree, actually underground through the fungus itself. Mm. Um, wow. And that can promote not only the, the fungus growing healthier and faster, but both trees as well. Mm. I think another great example of how um, biodiversity can work is uh, banana trees. So banana or um, fake banana in Ethiopia, they have this tree called um, <laughs> fake banana. Um, it, it, it's actually an amazing tree. It grows really, really fast. It absorbs huge amounts of carbon. And because it drops so much organic matter, it, it actually captures like huge amounts of carbon in the soil. Um, so this wonderful plant sort of protects the coffee from, from harsh wind. It can provide a bit of shade if needed. It produces a heap of leaf litter, like just a lot of organic sort of rich material for the ground. Um, and in places where they use real banana, like Rwanda or other parts of Ethiopia, um, they obviously, you know, uh, provides a food source as well outside of the coffee harvest. 
What are some of the ways that a particular coffee-grown region can have an impact on a producer's cost of production? Well, there can be a huge range of um, cost of production, and honestly, we don't know what it is for a lot of producers. Um, some of the producers we talk to have a, a really clear idea about what it costs them to produce coffee, and then others, they don't have any idea. So uh, it is a little bit tricky to speculate, but some of the factors that um, we know can contribute are things like, you know, broadly development in the country. So a place that has, you know, a very well-developed government has got paved roads, has got local government systems that take care of things. Um, they will generally have um, better access to things like, you know, fertilizers, chemicals, fungicides, pesticides, compared to places that are just not developed as well. Um, those places such as, you know, very rural Ethiopia or um, parts of Bolivia, they find it very difficult to, to actually acquire the, the chemicals or um, fertilizers, fungicides, things like that. So their, their struggle there is they'll focus more on doing things like creating nurseries or, um, you know, just actually just generating more plants for producers to, to put in the ground. So the cost of the inputs is a large part of the cost of production. Um, the cost of labor as well is also a big part of the cost of production. And in some cases, it's the producers themselves. And in other cases, the producers will uh, use hired labor. Um, and the hired labor can be um, more expensive or less expensive. So places like Brazil, where the minimum wage is higher, um, it will mean that the cost of production for, for the labor component is higher. Um, for example, then places like Guatemala, where they may have seasonal pickers come from Peru or Chile and come through um, and pick on a lower sort of daily rate. Yes. So it's, it's, it's hard to generalize in, I think, to sort of summarize, I would say that um, the, the government help is really important. So places like Colombia, where they have a very strong farmers association, place like Guatemala, where they have a where they have Anacafe, a producers association, they have a lot of support for producers in terms of agron uh, agronomy support. Um, but also a lot of money has gone into scientific research in, in terms of improving growing quality. So cost of production in those areas is generally lower because there's more support. Bolivia we're pretty familiar with and, and we know that cost of production there is really high um, because they've had just a number of things work against them in terms of them being able to produce coffee from anything, from things like cocoa production being really easy and accessible um, for a lot of people in the area where coffee is also produced that can sort of, uh, you know, persuade people to stop growing coffee and start growing cocoa and that can make it again just more expensive to produce coffee. I guess on the flip side, are there any examples that come to mind where a region's name or its reputation have actually helped producers achieve higher prices for their coffee? Yeah, I think Colombia has. I think Colombia um, did a lot of marketing, especially in the, the 90s and 2000s around Juan Valdez, and they really you know, pushed, their, pushed the brand of Colombian coffee and um, did a lot for the value of Colombian coffee. I think for the quality that um, the quality of coffee that comes into Australia anyway of Colombian coffee, it's, it's, you know, spectacular. And I don't think it, it needs a, you know, mystical story about the, um, <laughs> the traditional or the, uh, the stereotypical producer. Um, but they've done a really good job in marketing. And then I think also there are the old, um, the old guard, which I would classify as Jamaica Blue Mountain and Kona Coffee. Um, and, you know, things like Colombian Excelso, which, sort of have a brand name in themselves because they're, they're just very, very old. 
Um, Yoga Chef as well is another good example of a coffee that's been, I guess, branded very well or um, uh, been used to achieve better prices for um, for producers in those areas just because of the name. Mm. Um, and recently they've found, you know, parts of Guji um, were actually producing, you know, pretty spectacular coffees, but they were selling it as Yoga Chef because the prices were higher. And and for us, that seems a bit strange because, you know, between Guji and Yoga Chef, which one is better? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter to us. We just want to know, you know, where it comes from exactly and who's producing it and stuff like that. So yeah. it, it can, yeah, it can throw up some, some strange things. Yeah, I was reading that similar things were happening even in Guatemala where coffee was being um, tracked across the border to sell for a higher price in, uh, in Antigua than other regions. So It's happened a lot. At Costa Rica and Hawaii as well has um, historically happened a lot. There's a, a huge amount of Kona coffee, which is the Hawaiian sort of brand coffee. Um, huge amounts of that being sold around the world, um, something like 10 times more than was being produced. So coffee was coming in from Costa Rica into Hawaii and then being sort of rebadged as Kona coffee and then being sold off around the world. Uh, what are some of the challenges that coffee producers face due to our warming global temperatures and uh, increasingly unstable weather patterns? Well, recently we've seen in Colombia that um, certain areas have increased their harvest periods. So instead of having one or two discrete harvest seasons through the year, um, places like Tolima in the south of Colombia, um, they found that they're actually harvesting coffee almost year round now. Um, they'll harvest every every three weeks or so because the rainfall cycles have just become really extended throughout the year. So instead of having two discrete rainfall periods and therefore two discrete harvest cycles, they're seeing rainfall year round and therefore picking year round. Is that is that better? Because I mean, that, that sounds like a good thing, but uh, are there consequences with that? There are. So it's good for some producers and it's tough for other producers. So in Colombia, it's, it's fine because the producers are quite small. So if it's... Um, you know, a small family group with a couple of neighbours and they're all helping each other out year round, it's good because it means they can, you know, pick coffee, they can um, they can prune, they can maintain their farm, but also get an income through the year, you know. So as soon as they pick the coffee and dried it, they can sell it down at the local weighing station. It's tough for bigger producers um, and producers that need to hire labour to pick. Instead of hiring seasonal workers for one, you know, two-month stretch or six-week stretch, you're having to hire a smaller amount of people year-round, and that can be very mm. difficult to not only to organise but also to, to afford. Yeah, but one other, um, I guess, result we've seen of um, uh, inconsistent rainfall temperatures is the coffee production in El Salvador, and we had a really devastating trip there in 2019, and Fleur and I went to you know regions that we had bought from for several years, and a lot of the coffee was just not being picked. You know, the farmers that had populated those areas had just up and left because there was so much roya on the plant, so much uh, leaf rust that the coffee, you know, was either just not ripening or it was ripening and it tasted terrible and they weren't getting very good prices for it. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with a slight increase in temperature, but also a, a quite a large increase in rainfall. Um, are there any particular ways that, uh, I guess you touched on Anna Cafe in Guatemala before, but are there some other local organisations or even just um, companies that are helping to broaden, uh, you know, how and grow the amount of coffee being produced in their home region? 
Yeah, I think I can think of a couple examples. One is um, at Mordkov in in Guji, Ethiopia. Um, we work with a producer called Haile, and he he's got a really um, strong belief that you know we all grow together. And he said it a number <laughs> of times to us. He took a, he took me aside and said, you know, as you grow, I grow. As I grow, we all grow. <laughs> and sort of you know went on about it. But he he's got some really interesting um, social and really progressive um, programs on his farm. So he has he's quite a large farm in Guji, um, but he also has a washing station and he he really helps local, um, uh, the people in his area to produce more coffee. So one of the ways is just simply by having a greenhouse or like a nursery for his farm, but he made it, you know, 10 times bigger. So he's got a nursery, not only for his farm, but for the entire area. And he gives out a lot of um, coffee plants to people who live in the area. Um, and, and that does a lot, you know, it, it does a lot because it can save the local, um, the local residents from having to have a nursery themselves. Mm. Um, he can ensure that the rootstock is really great or the, the coffee um, variety that they're planting is a really great variety that, that works well for the region too. Um, and, and in turn, as he says, it, it sort of grows, you know, his output as well. So he will buy the, um, the cherry off local producers, um, and put it through his mill and either sell it as Mordkoff or just coffee from Shikiso from the area. Um, so there's things like that, but he, he has a, he has a number of programs. So the, there's the nursery, um, he had an education program. He said it was, you know, very small and he spoke very humbly of it, but, you know, he, he spoke about, um, having a small school on his farm and, um, educating the local children as well. Um, so there's things like that. There's also just um, larger scale sort of government um, government funded operations. I, I talked about Anna Cafe earlier, but that, some of the services are really incredible. Like you can send off soil samples, um, full root samples for analysis to check what's happening if you have you know nematodes or something in in the ground that you weren't aware of. Um, yeah, all, all kinds of things. So. That's so great. Thanks so much for listening. That was the first in our three-part series, Origin Variety Process. Following this initial series, Tyson and I will be taking a deeper dive, focusing on each of the countries that Market Land purchases coffee from. We'll be hearing first-hand stories from our coffee buying team and learning a little bit more about the people who grow some of our favorite coffees. So if you like what you've been listening to, please consider subscribing so you won't miss out on an episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to catching up with you over a coffee soon.